Good morning. How's everybody doing today? <laughs> that bad, huh? It's rough. How's everybody doing? Oh, sounded terrible. Maybe we try that one more time. Just give you a second opportunity. How's everybody doing today? All right. That's more like it. Fake it till you make it. All right. It's good to see all of you. Uh, we began a series several weeks ago called The Beginning. And uh, we have been walking through the book of Genesis, uh, particularly the first part of Genesis, just kind of looking at the beginning of different aspects. How things started often give indication as to what God's intentional plan was, what he wants for us. And so over the last couple of weeks, we looked at the beginning of God's revelation to us, where he said, in the beginning, God, and we're able to realize that God predates, he pre-exists any of our issues. Uh, We looked at the creation process Uh, where in six days he created the earth as we know it. If you've missed any of these messages, they're available uh, online. Last week we looked at, um, we looked at, or the week after that we looked at rest, the beginning of rest. And last week we looked at the beginning of work and how even before the fall, uh, God had responsibilities for us and that we can allow our work to be our worship. And this morning uh, we're going to address what is easily um, the most Uh, at least our culture, the most controversial message of this series, and um, and, and quite possibly, it's it's without question, the most emotional. And so this morning, I I want to say a couple of things just kind of right out of the gate uh, as we look at the beginning of uh, the the way God intended family and marriage to look. Uh, I want to say a couple of things right out of the gate, and and I hope you will hear me, Um, but I want you to know that this could be loaded with emotion. And sometimes the problem with emotion is emotion clouds our judgment. And so if at some point during the message this morning, you find yourself offended or um, you, you just find yourself going, man, I don't know, there was, that just doesn't feel exactly right or that's not what I was expecting to hear or even I don't like that. This is what I want to challenge you with. Uh, I want you to know that I didn't wake up this morning excited about this message because of its possibilities and potential to offend. I do think there are preachers and teachers that feel like if they don't offend somebody every Sunday, then they haven't done something right. I'm not that way. Um, I don't have a problem if you are offended by Scripture. That doesn't bother me. Uh, But what does bother me is if we allow offense and emotions to keep us from hearing what God may want to say to us. And so what I want to ask you to do is put on your big boy pants and big girl pants today. And uh, if something just doesn't sit well with you, just consider it. Just maybe like ask some questions like, could I be wrong about this? And maybe leave here and go research further. Uh, because what I want to share with you this morning, what I want to show you is, is the way God started the marriage and, uh, marriage and the family. And, and then I want to give you some thoughts that I have concerning that and allow you to just maybe process that and see if it's possible that, uh, that something could be said this morning that would be helpful. And, uh, and I'll be honest with you, over the years, one of the things I have realized is uh, if anyone has helpful advice for marriage, most married people welcome the advice. Even if they don't use it, it's kind of like uh, we're all kind of in this together, it feels like. And all, I don't think there's probably anybody in the room, if you've been married more than a day, who's like, I have got it all together in marriage. So um, I, I would just encourage you to kind of approach it um, that way. And that being said, I want to pray for us. And uh, maybe just take a minute and give you a chance just to maybe clear your mind and your heart and just ask God to let you hear what he wants you to hear. Father, we thank you for the morning. Uh, thank you for all that you're doing in this place. Thank you for 
um, the people who are here, and, and God, just I pray that you would, uh, however it is that you do it, however it is your Holy Spirit works, that you would just speak to our hearts. Uh, I ask for an extra season of your grace this morning um, and mercy, and um, God, may everything that said honor you. And God, I ask that you just say something helpful to people this morning that um, would inspire them to live life in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, several years ago, in fact, um, there were some legislative decisions made regarding uh, marriage, and some of you are probably uh, aware of what I'm talking about. And, and when that happened, it kind of flipped our culture a little bit, particularly the church culture in the South. It kind of flipped us up on our end just a little bit. And, um, and, and people began to discuss that. People began to, uh, on both sides of an aisle, both sides of the issue, uh, we just began to see lots of emotion with that. And one of the things that came up during kind of that process that I heard often, that if I really wanted to get people to, you know, kind of chime back with an amen, I could say it this way this morning, I would say, I could say this, and most of you in here would be like, that's right. Uh, as I could say, what I think that we need to do is we need to focus more on biblical marriage. I could say that. And people would be like, you got that right. Like, like, where are we going wrong in this culture is we've gotten away from biblical marriage. And what you need is you need to make sure you have a biblical marriage. And here's the problem with that. Uh, and you may have never thought about this, but if you grew up in church or you've been around church for any length of time, that's, there's something that you imagine that to be that may be very different than what the reality of biblical marriage is. Because when you say what we really need is biblical marriage, I, if I were a critic, this might be my answer. I might say, well, what biblical marriage are you talking about? I mean, maybe, maybe you're talking about Abraham and Sarah. That's in the Bible. It's in the book of Genesis. So maybe your idea of a biblical marriage is that when you want to have a kid, and maybe you've even been promised by God you're going to have a child, and that child, as a result of that child, you're going to be the father of a great nation. You're going to have tons of descendants. When that don't work out as fast as you want it to, you should go sleep with your servant, get her pregnant, and have a baby with her. Maybe that's, is that the, I mean, maybe that's what we mean when we say we want a biblical marriage, right? I mean, I mean maybe, that's, maybe that's the method we should go. Or, or maybe you're like, Matt, that's a little far-fetched. I mean, the real biblical marriage we're talking about is one like Abraham's brother, also in Genesis, who, uh, who married his niece. Maybe that's biblical marriage. Maybe, you know, maybe we start a website now and we, you know, instead of equallyyoke.com, it's help me meet my niece. Maybe that's what we're going for is, uh, I mean, that doesn't sound very healthy to me, uh, but maybe that's what you meant when you said that you, that we, what we should all have is a biblical marriage that's after all uh, in the Bible David the man after God's own heart maybe we all want a marriage like David's biblical marriage like David uh, he had eight of them eight his eighth one was Bathsheba he ended up marrying Bathsheba after he had an affair got her pregnant and arranged for the murder of her husband maybe that's the biblical marriage that we all want to do uh, mar marriage number one Michael I think was her name uh Crazy dysfunctional. Um, in fact, uh, she got sideways with David when, when she criticized David's dancing skills. You can find that in Scripture. David's coming back from a battle, and um, he became too undignified for her. He was dancing. She didn't like it. Seems kind of unreasonable to me that she'd make a big deal about that, but then if I put myself in her situation and David's, if I was dancing, 
my wife would probably say something along those lines to me. All right, so, but nonetheless, if your wife gets on to you about your dancing, marry six more. And then if those don't work out, have an affair, get the lady pregnant, kill her husband, and all will be well. Maybe that's the biblical marriage that we're talking about when we talk about biblical marriage. Maybe my favorite, Solomon, wisest man who ever lived. We could probably learn a lot about marriage from Solomon. In fact, I would say he has a lot of insight into marriage since he married 700 women and had 300 concubines. I'm just reading that again to make sure I've said that right. The second time I've said this today, and I'm equally appalled, I can't even begin to fathom this, y'all. I can't fathom this. Uh, to, th- th- this week, two days from now, I was, I was told last night in very explicit detail by my wife, um, do not say anything about me today. <laughs> Just stick to the word, Matt. They don't need any illustrations that involve me. That's what she said. And I concur, but I don't see her. I'm just kidding. Tuesday, I will, Jennifer and I will celebrate 25 years of marriage uh, this upcoming Tuesday. Yeah, thank you. Uh, 18, 18 of those uh, we will have celebrated here at LifePoint, which is remarkable to me uh, to imagine that. Um, but in 25, let me just tell you, 25 years of marriage. Let me tell you one thing I've learned. One thing I've learned is I don't have a flipping clue how Solomon dealt with 700. <laughs> You're like, what? Are you saying that about Jennifer? No, I'm saying 700 wives, 300 concubines, that's three birthdays and three anniversaries a day. A day. Not to imagine all the other stuff that comes along with, with 1,000 women Maybe that's the biblical marriage. I, I, I bet you he liked at least one of them. I mean, odds are. Odds are there's one that's like, actually, I, but here's what it is. Every day, every day there's at least one that's like crazy and one that's not. I figure that's a good odds right there, right? But maybe that's what you mean. When you say what we need to be doing is having a biblical marriage, maybe we go with that. Maybe, maybe it's Herod, King Herod in the New Testament, who um, married his brother's wife. Brother's wife. That sounds like a family reunion, you know, fun times at a family reunion right there, right? So maybe by biblical marriage, what you mean is the next time you're at a family get together, if your brother's wife is more attractive than your wife, just switch, right? I mean, maybe that's what that means. And most of you are like, that's not at all what we mean. And yet, the truth is, is when we begin to talk about biblical marriage, that is a wide array of all kinds of stuff. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is I want to talk to you about what did marriage look like at the very beginning? But before sin messed it up, before we messed it up, before, before personality and emotion and chaos and controversy and unfaithfulness and divorce and whatever else has happened in the last six or 8,000 years or however long it's been since the creation of humanity, what did it look like when God established it the way he wanted it to? Because if there's anything that I've heard over and over and over in the last 18 years of being your pastor, is over and over what I find people tend to want out of marriage, it seems to me, is that people want a happy marriage. I mean, I hear it all the time. 
I'm just not happy in my marriage. Or I have been happily married for X number of years. That's always concerning to me when somebody's like, I've been married 20 years, been happily married, about four of them. You know, that's always a little concerning. But what people seem to want is a happy marriage. And I begin to think about that today, I begin to think, or last night, I begin to think about a happy marriage. And, and it's almost like this. It's almost like people, that's what I can illustrate, it's almost like people are trying to make a cake. Like they set out to make a cake, and, and as, they, as they go into the kitchen with the plans to make the cake, they're like, i tell you what I want, is I want a cake that looks great and tastes great. I mean, what, that's not too much to ask. I just want a cake that looks great, tastes great. And so maybe they jump online and they find a recipe for a cake. And they're like, I want to make a cake, tastes great, looks great. And they find one online and whatever website says, this is my favorite cake ever, best cake I've ever made, best cake I've ever put in my mouth. And so they download the recipe. And on that recipe, there's a, there's a list of instructions of what to do and there's a list of ingredients. And, and, and they go in the kitchen and begin to gather the ingredients, right? And so they look on there and it says, and by the way, I have never made a cake in my entire life. So when I get this all wrong, just understand, it's because I think this was a great illustration. I didn't think they were going and looking up a recipe. Just what happens, right? So they go into the kitchen. They're like, recipe calls for three eggs. So they go to the kitchen, open up the refrigerator. There's three eggs. I grab three eggs and set them on the counter. They look down next and it says, however many cups, I don't know, so many cups of all-purpose flour. They walk over there and they open up the cabinet. They begin to look through there and they're like, well, I don't see any all-purpose flour. So they download a picture, get on the internet, and they look at a picture of it and they go, well, I mean, that bag looks just like that bag of cornmeal. I mean, it's got to be about the same thing. So they just grab the cornmeal out and set it on the counter. I mean, both of them are powdery and both of them come in a bag of like five pounds. I mean, what difference could it make, right? They look on there and it says bacon powder so much bacon powder and they look up in the cabinet again they go well I got some bacon soda I mean one word's the same that probably work they get that set it out there on the counter sugar well I mean every house in the south has got sugar that's no big deal they just grab the sugar put it out there grab the other ingredients and they go over and get them a mixing bowl out of the uh, out of the cabinet bring it over set it on top of the bar right and they start going by the instructions they've gathered their ingredients they get their instructions Look at it and it says, you know, put, I don't know, three or four cups of flour. They look at their cornmeal and they go, man, that's a lot of effort to go all the way back over to the cabinet to get the measuring cup. I mean, I don't want to do all that. So they just go, hmm, one, two, three. And just kind of dump it in there, right? That's about three cups. Now they got them three cups of, maybe, of cornmeal. They look at it and it says, put the three eggs in there and stir it up well. And they're like, I hate cracking eggs. Terribly inconvenient. I mean, I had to go get the whisk and whisk that up. So you just throw, the whole, just throw all the eggs in there. Just shell and all, just pitch it in there. Right? Sugar. They read it. It says however much sugar. And like, oh, I mean, I like sugar better than that. I mean, certainly I know more about how sweet I want my cake than the recipe. So they just put twice as much sugar in there. And throughout the process, they just kind of do whatever's convenient or in that moment seems to be what they want to do or makes the most sense. And eventually they take it and they pour it into a cake pan, stick it in the oven, and they cook it. But I mean, they got busy. 
they got busy doing something else. So instead of cooking it for 20 minutes, they cooked it for an hour and 20 minutes. You know, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, what, what's the big deal about just missing it by a little bit? So they come back in and open the cab, you know, open the, the stove and open the oven. And of course, there's smoke. And they pull out this cornmeal bacon soda, extra sugar, uncracked egg, whatever. And they're just totally surprised that it wasn't what they were looking for. Like, this doesn't look great or taste great. And as far-fetched as that seems that we would do that about a cake, I often think that what we've done with marriage is rather than figuring out what's the ingredients and what's the method and what's the, what's the recipe, we just kind of just do whatever feels good in the moment. And, and, and sometimes to do the right thing the right way that, that gets the right result is just terribly inconvenient. So we just shortcut that. And then we add to it that in the culture, we've kind of hijacked what marriage is and we've tried to define marriage and give definition to something that wasn't ours to give a definition to. All I think, my opinion, all I think in an effort to just accomplish the goal of I just want a happy marriage. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to take you all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 2. Where God recognizes an issue and takes responsibility to solve the issue. And in solving the issue, gives us a framework for something I think would be more effective and more satisfying than seeking after just a cake that looks good and tastes great. That maybe we could pursue something other than happiness. In Genesis chapter 2, God has created the heavens and the earth. He's created man and he has placed man in the garden. And he's given man responsibility to work it and to keep it. If you missed last week's message, that was the essence of last week's message. So Adam is working and keeping the garden. And in this process of working and keeping the garden, God notices something. I want you to see what he notices. Then the Lord, God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I want to show you the next verse. I want to come back to this one. He says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, I don't know if there's any indication that Adam felt that there was any lack or that he was missing anything. We don't find it anywhere where Adam is in prayer and he goes, God, I have got to do something. Like, God, the giraffes, there's like a male giraffe and a female giraffe. There's a male elephant and a female elephant. Uh, God, I mean, everything's got like a partner. I got nothing. I'm going to need some help. We don't see any indication that Adam does that. But from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis chapter 2-18, everything that God has done, God has responded to what he's done by saying, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. He gets to the end of the creation process, and on day six, he says, it is very good. And then he takes Adam and he puts him in the garden. He gives him responsibility. He begins to name the animals. What a great responsibility that was. Wouldn't that be awesome? Can you imagine that? God just parades animals by you and you're like, lion, tiger, bear, 
Yeah. And then like, he, you know, those are the easy ones. Then eventually you got run out of names, and that's where I guess you come up with rhinoceros. I mean, what else was he going to mean? At that point, he just mumbled. Really, that's what happened. He just mumbled. He just mumbled. And they're like, oh, yeah, rhinoceros. We'll just write that. And I was like, that was a great one, right? Giraffe. Like, I mean, what a great job. And God recognizes that there's something Adam needs. That Adam needs a helper. What God recognizes is that it was not good for man to be alone. And I I want you to hear this. It's kind of in addition to the message that's totally free this morning. Is isolation has never been God's plan. God has never had a plan for us to live in isolation. We are designed to live in community. God, we bear the, uh, we, we, we carry the, foot, the fingerprint of God. We bear his image. God exists in community. We are designed to exist in community. And now here's Adam all alone. And God recognizes it. Who knows if Adam did? In fact, most of us, when we find ourselves in a place of isolation, probably don't even realize it's an issue. And Adam could have very well been in the same place. And yet God recognizes it's an issue. And God says it is not good for man to be alone. And, and when God recognizes there's a need, he does not rely on Adam to solve the problem. He initializes and he solves the problem. And God decides, I will make a helper for him. And this morning, what I want to help you understand is that in God's sovereignty, in God's plan, however all that works out, and however it is that God works in this world, even in spite of sin, in spite of poor decisions, I want you to understand that when you consider your spouse, I want you to understand that your spouse is the way that God solves a problem of isolation for you. He is, it is still, your spouse is still the helpmate that God's designed. You might say, well, man, I don't know if that's really the case because I've known my wife or I've known my husband since before I was even a believer. That's the crazy thing about God's sovereignty is even in a lost state, even in a sinful state, even in poor decision, God's sovereignty supersedes all of that. And God understanding it's not good for you to be alone works things out and solves the problem himself. Because it's not, God, it's not your happiness that God's looking to achieve. He didn't say, well, look at Adam. He is unhappy. No, he said, look at Adam. and It is not good that he would be alone. And God specifically solves the issue of isolation by developing a helpmate for him. God goes on to, to, to demonstrate, or Moses shares the narrative of exactly how that happened. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. It says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs... And closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And and the the poetic and the graphic nature of that is just a beautiful thing that God does not just speak a woman into existence, but he actually, you see the delicate nature, the surgical precision by which he creates woman. By the way that he, the, the, the intentionality that he takes, the fact that he would remove a rib and he would put the flesh back in place and he would, he would utilize that as a woman just shows the delicate nature, the genius of creativity that God has, that he doesn't just do what would be expected. I think my favorite thing about this is that, is that God just does the unexpected. That, that Adam doesn't likely even realize that there's an issue and when God decides to solve the issue, he does it in the most creative, delicate precise way that could ever be imagined and he he forms woman and then he does the amazing he creates 
marriage. And in creating marriage, you say, how does he do that? We see where he brings the woman to the man. He delivers this work that he has just done. He solves the problem and he brings her. I, I, think, I think it's the beautiful picture of the bride walking down the aisle at a wedding with her Often her father that is bringing her down. It's like the it's 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 the simulation of of delivering the bride is and it's almost a reminder of what God does is that he he took Eve and he brought her to the man and it's so incredible what Adam does in response to it. He he actually writes his bride a song. Says then the man said, "This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." And I love the this at last. You can almost feel the relief and the, and the exhilaration in Adam's song as maybe he didn't even realize what he needed, but the, just the, the understanding that when God brings a woman to the man, he's like, finally at last, exactly what I needed. And this morning, I would want you to understand that in God's design for marriage and the way he did it at the beginning, your spouse is God's blessing and is God's provision of just exactly what you need. Now, I'll be honest, when I, was a student, when I was a student in high school, my student pastor constantly talked about praying for the wife or the husband that God has for you. And uh, I don't even know how I feel about that. I mean, I don't think that's a bad prayer. Uh, the thing that I would pray, I would ask you to pray if you're a student or you're unmarried this morning, is just pray for who will eventually be your spouse. I don't know if God has one person picked out for us. I don't know. I mean, I, maybe. And I, I can't imagine, I mean, for me, that feels like that could very well be a possibility because I, I don't know that there was more than one that would marry me. So, I mean, I think that's definitely a possibility. But, and I can't imagine anything more suited. I can't imagine anybody more suited uh, for me than the one that... that he gave to me. But the thing that I would say is whoever your spouse is, you should understand that you should have that feeling. You, you should understand the finally at last, the, the one that makes my soul glad. Finally at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. And as soon as Adam finishes the poem, the song that he writes for Adam, Moses records the response, the the application, the, the so what, now what of this whole narrative of God designing marriage. And he says it this way, he says, therefore, because of all of this, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, several years ago, I don't even know how long it's been now, when our country and most of the states in our country determined that they would legalize homosexual marriage, it was the, the church culture was turned upside down. And I mean, we just had a heyday with, you know, where we were going and how horrible the culture was. And interestingly enough, I, I didn't overreact to that, I don't think, because I just always expect lost people to act like lost people. And, um, but what I think bothered me the most was uh, I don't think that marriage... Um, I, I don't think it's a government thing. I don't think it's a cultural thing. Uh, I don't think it's a legislative thing. Uh, I, I don't think that our culture, our government, our, our neighbors, even us, the church, I don't, I don't think that we have jurisdiction over marriage. I think the problem that I had with all of that 
was that uh, God defines marriage as God who created marriage. I don't think that you got to have a, you know, I don't think you should be required a marriage license to be married because I don't know, understand what the license concept is when this was what marriage looked like when God designed it. And the logical end of the direction that we were going as a culture is, is that we were, I felt like we were lessening the, what, what marriage was intended to be to the point that uh, I, I remember having conversation with people and they were like, well, Matt, that's, the, the tax benefits of, of this is not fair to people who are not heterosexuals. And I'm like, well, where do we stop that at? I mean, I got three dogs. I'd like to have the tax benefit off of three dogs. I mean, can we, are we going to marry dogs? I mean, I know some men that love their refrigerators more than they love their wives. Maybe we just marry refrigerators and, you know, we get a little tax credit for that. I mean, what, what's the logical end of this? And to me, it was the understanding that marriage is not about a tax credit. It's not a legislative decision. That marriage was God's solution to an issue of isolation. And then the question becomes, well, well, yeah, but what if that just doesn't work for me? I mean, what if emotionally I'm, that doesn't work for me? I mean, don't, doesn't God want me to be happy? I mean, th- this, is, this is pretty narrow, I mean, let's walk through that together. This is a pretty narrow definition of marriage that we have at the very beginning. When, when God establishes this thing, it was first of all that a man um, shall leave his father and mother. It's the idea of a relational change, a, re- a relational transition. The idea of leaving father and mother in this culture particularly had a lot to do with the fact that, that people didn't travel very far away from home. They were a very agrarian culture. And so the, per, the, the people you spent the most time with, you had the most relational equity with, was your father and mother. And, and there's a transition there where you go from being a son or a daughter, in this case a son, the man leaves his father and mother, it's going from being a son to a husband. That the relational equity, the, the, important, relational, the, the important relationship in your life is no longer your father and your mother, it's transitioning to the highest priority of relationship is your wife, your spouse. I mean, guys in the room, men, they're married, if... If, you're, if it appears as though you love your mom more than you love your wife, you need to get that corrected. If you're, if you're comparing your wife to your mom, like, I don't even know that this psychologically makes sense and Quentin may get on to me like, stop it. Like, just quit that. Leave your mama. Leave your father. And go be joined with your wife. Uh, ladies in the room, if your BFF is somebody other than your spouse, break up with them. Like the, 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 the closest friendship that you should have is with your spouse. It is God's plan for isolation. You say, so I shouldn't have any friends, Matt. Uh, it, it's amazing to me how many things I say in English from this stage to people who hear English and then interpret things I say as though I said them in gibberish. Every time I've ever had a marriage message, somebody comes up to me afterwards and go, man, I'm so glad that you shared that with me this morning. Man, I, I knew that my wife was not the right person for me and you have given me permission to divorce them. And I'm like, somebody said, why didn't you correct them? I went, because I, I, we speak two different languages. I said it in English the first time and they didn't hear it. Like, I don't understand. 
I'm not saying that you can't have any friends. And I'm not saying that you can't, that you've got to spend all of your time with your spouse and you should never spend any time alone. What I'm saying is, is the daily rhythm, the function, the, the, the typical rhythm of your life is God has given you your spouse as a solution to isolation. And in that solution to isolation, you must prioritize the relationship. Leave your mother and your father and cling, hold fast to your wife. Hold fast. The, the idea there is that, that we are clinging to, we are cleaving to. It, it, it is, you, you are nestled up close to. You should never stop getting to know your spouse. 25 years later, I should still be getting to know my wife. You should still be getting to know your spouse. You should be, you should be still leaving your mama and your daddy and still clinging to your wife, to your spouse. And they shall become one flesh. And there are certainly sexual overtones to the becoming one flesh and the idea of what that means, but I think there's also the idea of oneness, this idea of developing that relationship. And, and the thing that's so ironic to me and, and very interesting to me is that as God determines this marriage, he answers a myriad of issues that our culture has made. You say, well, Matt, what about, what about this? Would this be okay? I don't need to know what this is. You, you answer it this way. Well, is what you're asking is okay. Does it fit this parameter? A man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife and becoming one flesh. You're like, well, my, listen, man, my, my wife just really, it don't really bother her. It don't really bother her at all for me to, you know, be with some other women. First of all, if she's telling you that, I, I'm going to go with, that ain't true. But let's assume it is. What difference does that make? Is that fitting the parameter of this? You say, well, I just, I don't really, I'm not attracted in that way. So shouldn't I get to be happy and uh, maybe, you know, I, could, I, I just do it this way. Well, is it this? Oh, well, that offends me. Well, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm asking you to consider how things looked when it was started, how it began. You say, well, what about, um, I mean, do, do I have to really like, do I have to like really be, be married? I mean, do I have to really be married? I mean, couldn't, I mean, couldn't we like just kind of like test drive this thing? I mean, like what's wrong with just like living together? I mean, you already said it shouldn't require marriage. Life, so I get that. So tell me this, are, are you becoming one flesh? Or are you becoming one flesh a whole bunch of other times too? Because the idea of become one flesh is an idea of commitment. It's an idea of permanence. By the way, this whole concept that what if we just live together before we get married? Let me just tell you, statistically speaking, it is the most bonkers thing that you could possibly do. The possibility of divorce almost triples for those who cohabitate first. It works exactly the opposite. It's really not like test driving a car. It's really like do it. It's, I'll tell you what it's really like. I mean, what's wrong with cornmeal? It kind of looks a whole lot like flour. I mean, baking soda, baking powder got the same word in it. Couldn't I just interchange them? You see, somewhere along the line, in this attempt 
to be happy and have a happy marriage. We get in our minds that the rules and the principles that God lays out for us in the pages of Scripture are there to keep us from enjoying our lives and to hold us back. <clears throat> They're just God's way of giving us rules for rule's sake. When really what it is, is God says, I am your creator. I'm your designer. I'm the, I'm, I'm the maker of life. And I understand you and life better than you understand you and life. And I want what's the very best for you. And I realize that right here in the moment, it seems inconvenient to have to go find some flour instead of cornmeal. And I realize right now in the moment, throwing a couple of extra cups of sugar seems like, I think I'd really like that because I like sugar. But take it from me. When you put it in the oven, you bake it, you ain't going to get out of it what you really hope for. And you say, well, Matt, couldn't things have changed? I mean, this is way, this is a long time ago. Couldn't things have changed? They probably could have. In fact, maybe, maybe some people thought that it had changed because one day uh, they asked Jesus some questions concerning this. Some Pharisees come to Jesus and said, to test him, they ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus, all right, we just get divorced for any reason we want to. And Jesus answers this question and so much more, more than what they were prepared for. When he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Isn't it funny that thousands of years later, in spite of Abraham and Sarah's marriage and Abraham's brother's marriage and David with all of his wives and Solomon with all of his wives and concubines and you may be like what is a concubine well a concubine is you should go home and read about that it's worth it in spite of Herod and somebody that married their niece thousands of years later Jesus says have you not remembered have you not read therefore a man shall leave his father and mother hold fast to his wife to become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore, he, he, re, he reiterates this, he adds this. This is Jesus' added commentary. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And we love to quote this in marriage ceremonies as though all that Jesus means there is, hey, don't get a divorce. I certainly think that's part of what Jesus meant when he said that, but here's what he means more than that. What God has established, trust it. Just what God, what God has done, what, what God started in the beginning, is trustworthy. There's going to come a point in your marriage or there's going to come a point while you're single and maybe you're approaching marriage or you're thinking about it. There's going to come a point when everything about this principle gets challenged. When your flesh wants to do something totally different. When, when, when the enemy says, why, why, that's really hard. Why would you want to do that? Or when the world says, that's antiquated and out of date. That you're going to be faced with the reality of who knows better? Me? The enemy? The culture? Or the one who made me? And the one who created marriage? And you say, well, so what do you think, Matt? What's the bottom line this morning? Well, I'd say this. I, 
I think we spend way too much time trying to have happy marriages. Uh, I, I think there's way too much energy and emphasis put on a happy marriage. I would say that if you want to experience healthy, you want to experience not biblical marriage, you want to experience original, God-intended marriage, what it looked like before we messed it up. I, I would say that, that this is what you should do. Pursue oneness, not happiness. To really begin to think about what did God mean and what did Jesus mean when he said the two shall become one. This miraculous thing that happens through marriage and through the consummation of the marriage where God takes two people and he makes them one, where he solves this issue of isolation, where he, where he provides an opportunity where we are made better by our spouse. I, I, think, I think the first thing that we realize is that we, we, we have to constantly pursue our spouse in order to pursue oneness. That, that, we, that we constantly get to know them better and better and better. That we make them an object of our attention. And that they become a case study in our lives of how do I get to know them better? How do I understand how they, how they operate? How they think? What makes them tick? But then I think the most practical thing that we can do to achieve oneness in our lives, in our marriages, is to focus on our responsibilities and not our rights. Now, I, I've already... I talked way too long this morning, probably. And uh, so I, I want to I encourage you to go home. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter five. In Ephesians chapter five, Paul kind of sums up some marriage advice in two ways, something to wives and something to husbands. He says this, he says to, to wives, he says, submit to, the, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And to the husband, he says, and love your wife as Christ loves the church. And one of the interesting things I found is over the last 20 years of sharing that passage of scripture, Every time that I say, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, all the guys in the room kind of perk up. And ladies, the reason that they do that, just so you know, and I can speak from a sense of expertise about this one thing, is for the most part, your husband would far rather you respect him than love him. I'm not saying he doesn't want to be loved by you. I'm just saying that a, a, a man understands love through the lens of, of, of respect. And, and every time I mention that, I see just men like perk up going, boy, that would be great. And our tendency, men, is to then pursue that right. It is to try to convince our wives to submit to us as unto the Lord. It's your responsibility to do that, ladies, and you should do that. You, you heard what Matt said. The problem is, is that Paul didn't say that to you because your name ain't wives. Your name is husbands. And when Paul said, wives, submit to the Lord, to submit to your husband as to the Lord, he was talking to the wives. And Paul and the Holy Spirit doesn't need your help. And if you want to experience the, 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 the health of a wife who submits to her husband as unto the Lord, then be a husband that loves his wife like Christ loves the church. As far as I can tell, I have never met a woman whose husband loves her like Christ loved the church. You talk about a tall order. A husband who loves her by protecting her. It's one of the ways that Jesus loved the church. By providing for her. 
Maybe the greatest thing that we see God do in, the, in, in throughout Scripture is he is the God of provision. He provides for needs and he provides redemption. And then he perfects her. That's what Jesus does for the church. He perfects us. He makes us better. He grows us. He disciples us. And if as a husband here today, men, you begin to take the responsibility for protecting your wife and providing for your wife and take the responsibility for the spiritual growth of your wife and begin to see in your wife that, that your wife is your ministry. And that's really, really difficult, if not impossible, to love like Jesus loves if you're not loving her. And as you begin to focus on your responsibility to that instead of your right to be respected, as she begins to focus on her responsibility to respect and not her right to be loved, and the two of you begin to try to outserve one another and outlove one another, the most amazing thing happens to become one. And when we begin to experience oneness, we begin to experience healthiness. You see, I really don't know that my goal for your marriage or God's expectation for your marriage is happiness. I, I think it's probably way down the list for God. But I promise you what he really wants is for you to experience oneness and healthiness. You say, why would you say that, Matt? Well, I'll close with this. When Jesus talks about his relationship between you and him, between him and the church, he refers to the church as his bride. And I think the reason that he does that is because marriages should be the picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Marriages should be a picture of sacrifice and a picture of grace and a picture of mercy and a picture of growth. That the world ought to look at our marriages and our marriages ought to point them to Jesus. And I don't know if that happens if our marriages aren't healthy and we don't experience oneness. Pursue oneness, not happiness. Father, thank you so much for this morning. God, I know this has been a lot. I know it's often something like this is like water from a fire hydrant, but God, I pray that you would give us the courage to listen to your word with open hearts and minds. Understanding that you are not a tyrant, but you're a loving heavenly father who only wants what's best for your children. I thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for the gift of oneness. God, be the, center of us, be the center of our marriages. May our marriages bear the testimony of a loving, gracious, merciful, heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.